Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Notes to the Children of Light. It's based upon the lectionary readings for September 22, 2019. I think I can safely say that no parable of Jesus's baffles me as thoroughly as the parable of the shrewd or dishonest manager. I've wrestled with it for a week now and still have no idea what to make of it. Apparently I'm not alone. People have struggled to make sense of this particular story from Luke's Gospel for centuries, not least because it raises the oddest and thorniest of questions. Why does the rich man commend his manager for dishonesty? Why does Jesus offer his followers such an unsavory character as a role model? In what sense are the children of light supposed to take a cue from the shrewdness of a self-interested scoundrel? Why is the parable followed by so many convoluted platitudes and glosses? Are we missing something? Or does the story in fact contradict everything Jesus stands for in the rest of the Gospels? I wish I had definitive answers to these questions, but I don't. What follows are possibilities. Notes limited and provisional guesses. I'm not wholly satisfied with any of them, but maybe that's the ultimate point of Jesus' parables, to enter in and keep wrestling. On earth as it is. In the story he tells, Jesus describes a manager who is about to be fired for squandering his employer's property. Knowing that his time is short and his future prospects of employment limited, The manager summons his boss's debtors, reduces their debts, and thus secures their goodwill and loyalty. When his boss finds out what the manager has done, he doesn't get angry. He commends the manager for acting shrewdly to save his own skin. Translation, Jesus describes a world we know only too well. A world in which dishonesty, corruption, self-interest, and ill-gotten wealth rule the day a world in which selfish ambition often secures praise and prosperity, while honesty garners cynicism and contempt, a world in which the heavy burden of debt cripples people both financially and morally, a world in which unfairness, exploitation, and privilege are so systemic we barely notice, much less protest, a world in which ethical living is neither straightforward nor easy. Maybe the parable of the shrewd manager is simply a grim but truthful portrait of the world as it is, the real world in which we are called to be children of light. Maybe the story is an acknowledgement that the calling is both radically countercultural and painfully hard. Maybe the story is Jesus leaning in towards us and saying, I know, it's bad out there. It's bad in here. I get it. The truth is, we as Christians live in a world that is profoundly interconnected and profoundly compromised. Even the tiniest financial decisions we make, where to shop, how to invest our money, what to eat or wear in an age of corporate greed, child labor, climate change, and globalization, have far-reaching consequences. Jesus' parables remind us to hold this complicated reality close to our hearts and our consciences all the time. To not do so is to succumb to the darkness. Don't just sit there. Do something. When the manager realizes that he's in trouble, he springs into action. He doesn't wait around. He doesn't despair. He hot-foots it out the door. 
a plan at the ready. Perhaps it's this sense of urgency, of single-mindedness, of creative possibility and cleverness that wins the manager such high praise from his employer. The manager harbors no illusions. He knows himself well. He knows he's not strong enough to dig, and he knows he's too ashamed to beg, so he focuses instead on redeeming what he can about the situation he finds himself in. In other words, there's something no-nonsense, something steely and utterly practical about his choices. Jesus puts it this way, The children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I wonder if this means we can do a better job of engaging the crises, issues, injustices, losses, and failures facing our generation, facing our church, facing our world, here and now. In what ways are we failing to meet the challenges of our time and place head-on? Where in our individual and collective lives are we waiting around instead of hitting the streets, the pews, the hearts, the nations? In what areas of contemporary life have we lost cultural relevance as Christians? Where and how might we be more shrewd, more clever, more creative, and more single-minded in our vocations as children of light? If the manager in Jesus' story can hustle so hard for his own survival, how much more might we contend on behalf of a world God loves? Forgive, forgive, forgive. This might be a stretch, but what if the parable of the dishonest manager is a parable about forgiveness? Radical, full-on, over-the-top forgiveness. The story begins with the rich man accusing the manager of squandering his property. What if what the boss considers squandering is actually generous living? What if the manager's mismanagement is actually the fruit of his compassion? How would the story read differently if we assume that the manager spent years risking his job and his employer's displeasure to ease the financial struggles of the workers he managed? True, his methods as described in the parable are dishonest. Jesus makes that abundantly clear. But what if, even in his imperfection, the manager embodies grace and forgiveness. This would be of a piece with his last and drastic move in the story. Even on his way out, he lessens the debts of those who can't pay off what they owe. He does so at the risk of further angering the boss he has already offended. One of the many interpretive glosses that ends the Gospel reading this week is a famous line from Jesus, You cannot serve God and wealth. If we choose to read the parable as a story of forgiveness, then even the rich boss's narrative arc ends in grace. When he's faced with the reckless generosity of his manager, he chooses to commend that generosity, even though the manager has lost him money. If the rich man loved and served his wealth over everything else, he wouldn't find it in his heart to extend forgiveness and approval to his manager. I don't think it's possible to draw neat correlations in this parable. The rich man is not straightforwardly God, and the manager is not straightforwardly us. But perhaps the story offers us glimpses of the divine. Where there is forgiveness, there is God. Where there is unburdening, where there is liberation, where there is crazy, radical generosity, there is God. And where God is, well, that's where we should seek to be as well. As I wrote at the start of the essay, these notes are just possibilities. My attempts to wrap my head around a story that bewilders me. If nothing else, the parable of the dishonest manager reminds me to tread lightly when it comes to the words and stories of Jesus. 
to approach with humility, to hold a place for mystery, and to refrain from closing down interpretations too soon. As is ever the case with Jesus, we are dealing with an overabundance of meanings, truths, and possibilities, not a lack. But the calling, still, is to live as children of light in a world that sorely needs solace, grace, forgiveness, and freedom. I pray that we will enter into that calling with our whole hearts and minds, creatively, urgently, shrewdly, while we still can. For books this week, Dan reviews How to Disappear, Notes on Invisibility in a Time of Transparency by Akiko Bush. In his 2013 novel, The Circle, Dave Eggers captures our technological zeitgeist by following the fortunes of a young woman named May. May is two years out of college. She left her job at an old-school utility company, a gulag that actually served a social purpose, to work at The Circle in Silicon Valley the most important and admired internet company in the world, the only company that really mattered at all. The Circle campus and everything about it is a Google-esque corporate utopia. My God, it's heaven, May gushes. There's everything anyone could want for work or play, including dorms where workers sleep. The Circle is led by the three wise men. The more you learn about the Circle, the more you realize that it's a case study of a cult. The corporate mantra is total transparency by all and for all. After all, Circle is a community. The Circle must be made whole, closed, and completed. And so the core beliefs of the company, which Eggers puts in all caps, secrets are lies, sharing is caring, privacy is theft. Nothing should ever be deleted, which isn't a problem anyway, because the powerful technologies of the Circle make that impossible. Like Edgar's novel, Akiko Bush's new book of 11 essays explores our culture of social media and surveillance economy. In our orgies of disclosure and cult of transparency, when companies track every click of your mouse in order to create and then sell complicated algorithms of big data, you are the product, not the consumer. Privacy is a nostalgic notion of the past. No wonder that Mark Zuckerberg is known to cover the lens on a smartphone camera with a piece of tape. It is time, says Bush, to question the false equivalency between not being seen and hiding, and time to reevaluate the merits of the inconspicuous life, to search out some antidote to continuous exposure, and to reconsider the value of going unseen, undetected, or overlooked in this new world. Might invisibility be regarded not simply as refuge, but as a condition with its own meaning and power? Going unseen may be becoming a sign of decency and self-assurance. The impulse to escape notice is not about complacent isolation or senseless conformity, but about maintaining identity, propriety, autonomy, and voice. It is not about retreating from the digital world, but about finding some genuine alternative to a life of perpetual display. It is not about mindless effacement, but mindful awareness. Neither disgraceful nor discrediting, such obscurity can be vital to our very sense of being, a way of fitting in with the immediate social, cultural, or environmental landscape. Human endeavor can be something interior, private, and self-contained. We can gain rather than suffer from deep reserve. There is a power of interiority and absence in our age of exposure, says Bush. So imagine it, a countercultural life of elective invisibility, concealment, 
anonymity, obscurity, and privacy, a life that is unknown and unseen. Bush reminded me of how 90% of Jesus' life remains totally unknown to us, and how in the Beatitudes Jesus calls us to give, to pray, and to fast in secret. The unseen Father, says Jesus, sees what is done in secret. For more on this theme, see Dan's review of the book by Jonathan Malisic, Secret Faith in the Public Square, An Argument for the Concealment of Christian Identity. For movies this week, Dan reviews The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. This British drama is based on a true story, namely the 2009 autobiography of the same title by William Kamkwamba from the village of Kasungo in Malawi. When a famine forced him to quit school because his family had no money for the tuition and bribes, young William started going to the village library, where he developed a love for electronics. After tinkering with batteries, radios, and water pumps as a youngster, at the age of 19, in 2006, the precocious William built a windmill out of local trees, repurposed bike parts, and scraps that he found in the local junkyard. His electric turbine powered the water pump, brought the rain, and allowed the village to plant crops year-round, thus saving them from famine. In real life, this inspirational story rocketed him to international fame, including graduation from Dartmouth College and a TED Talk about his windmill. Chiwito Umedi Yujofar, known for his roles in hits like Amistad, Dirty Pretty Things, Kinky Boots, and Twelve Years a Slave, wrote, directed, and stars in this film. The movie had its world premiere at the Sundance Festival in January 2019, and then its global distribution on Netflix in March of 2019. The real story of Kamkwamba is better than this dramatization, which has garnered positive, if modest, reviews. It is inspirational, to be sure, but also formulaic and predictable. Nonetheless, any positive cinema coming out of Africa where the movie is filmed is a wonderful development. I watch this movie on Netflix. And finally, for poems this week, The Happy Debtor by John Henry Newton. Ten thousand talents once I owed, and nothing had to pay, but Jesus freed me from the load and washed my debt away. Yet since the Lord forgave my sin and blotted out my score, much more indebted I have been than e'er I was before. My guilt is cancelled quite, I know, and satisfaction made, but the vast debt of love I owe can never be repaid. The love I owe for sin forgiven, for power to believe, for present peace and promised heaven, no angel can conceive. That love of thine, thou sinner's friend, witness thy bleeding heart. My little all can ne'er extend to pay a thousandth part. Nay more, the poor returns I make, I first from thee obtain. And tis of grace that thou wilt take such poor returns again. Tis well, it shall my glory be, let who will boast their store, in time and to eternity, to owe thee more and more. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for September 22nd, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.